electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod, ExxonMobil breaking all available records for oil industry profits, making $56 billion. CEO Darren Woods offers no apologies for the eye-popping numbers. When times were toughest, we were out there investing investing at a level uh, that exceeded anybody else in our industry. We had a keen focus on making sure that we had the production there and products available for society when it was needed. And no apologies for increased share buybacks and dividend payouts. And that's one of the balances that we have to strike, reducing emissions and generating returns for our shareholders. Tesla, Ford, Rivian, Lucid, all vying for the most competitive plug-in price tag. Wall Street Journal EV reporter Tim Higgins. That can be a very painful process from going from the rather cool idea of a car, uh, cool product, to making a car at scale. Uh, just ask Elon Musk and his uh, sleeping on the factory floor for all those uh, years. Plus, a market warning from short seller Jim Chanos, the White House cracking down on what Medicare charges the government, and Johnson & Johnson's dance to avert lawsuits? Well, someone stopped the music. The Texas Two-Step, I didn't really realize it was called the Texas Two-Step, Becky. It's a pretty good name for it. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square and from Inglewood Cliffs. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. Good morning, Andrew. Good to see good you. Good morning. Good morning. Meantime, uh, let's talk about famed short seller uh, Jim Chanos. I don't know if you saw this, Becky. He is now raising an alarm over a trend in the market. Here's what he said last night on Fast Money. We don't try to time the market, um, but like anybody else, I have opinions, and things are not cheap. I mean, I, uh, they're not as expensive as they were, say, a year and a half ago. Um, on the other hand, um, the market is at 18 times forward. Um, profit margins are at all-time highs, so that has not mean reverted. And one of the most mean reverting time series in all of economics and finance is corporate profitability. And it's been stubbornly good and, and high. Um, but since I've been on the street in 1980, not one bear market has ever traded above 9 to 14 times the previous peak earnings. So whether it's 87, 89, 90, 94, uh, 2002, uh, or 09, um, if you think earnings are peaking now, give at $200. Um, that's a long way down, right? That's 1800 to 2800 um, We're not anywhere near that. Chano said that people are now pricing what he called a Goldilocks scenario of corporate profits, uh, up 12% this year, 2% inflation, and a Fed rate cut in the next six to seven months. He said he doubts the bullish scenario will unfold. Of course, he is a short seller, um, but uh, he's a smart short seller. He's called a lot of things right over the years. And uh, at a minimum, I think he's indicated, at least from a data perspective, I don't know where you stand on this, Becky, in terms of just thinking about 
the, 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 relative, the relative nature of the markets. Yeah, and look, Jim is someone who generally looks very, um, very much just at companies. He's not somebody who generally right. looks at broader market trends, but when he does speak about it, I, I would listen up. Again, it's not something he sticks his neck out and talks about broad market trends very often. So if he's saying something, it's because he definitely has a point of view with it. You're right, he's a short seller, but... Um, uh, look, he, he's capable of looking at broad markets just as much as individual stocks. He just doesn't speak about them very often. So I would think he has some conviction to go ahead and stick his neck out on, on a call like this. Johnson Johnson shares, they fell yesterday uh, during the session. This after a federal appeals court rejected the company's plan to move its talc inquiry lawsuits to bankruptcy court and then try to freeze them in place. Now, remember, the company had created this thing called LTL Management in 2021 to try to limit talc-related cancer claims that have now cost the company's consumer business $4.5 billion and expected to continue potentially for decades. The strategy is known as the Texas Two-Step, that's they call it in legal circles, uh, trying to pass off the legal and financial liabilities to another company, which then files for bankruptcy protection. In this case, the court's move means that J&J now once again exposed to those claims could also signal tougher scrutiny of the legal tactic, which could make it harder for big companies to move past costly and time-consuming personal injury litigation. Um, and I don't know if I'm supposed to have opinions or not, but I, for one, always thought that the, um, the Texas Two-Step, I didn't really realize it was called the Texas Two-Step, <laughs> Becky, but I, I didn't like the Texas Two-Step when I realized, uh, well, I've known about what it is, but I didn't I didn't know the name. No, I, I agree. I've, I've seen other companies that have tried to do this in the past. Didn't know it was called the Texas two step. It's a pretty good name for it. Um, but, yeah, it's I can understand why a company would want to do it because you want to ring fence things and say there's only so much um, responsibility that we're going to have to something. But it, it, it does. You know, it, it's it, I can understand why a court would knock it down too to say, forget it. You're not going to be able to sidestep or two step your way out of this. Um, so we'll see what happens with this. I mean, these the legal f- bills that have uh, rung up for the calc, the talc situation have, have really become pretty incredible. I didn't realize it was four and a half billion dollars at this point. Again, you can understand why a company, why shareholders would want to do this, but you can also understand the courts move to say, forget it, you can't do it. Right. And the Biden administration issuing a new rule yesterday, cracking down on Medicare private plans that have overcharged the federal government. It calls for tougher auditing for plans in the Medicare Advantage program, which accounts for nearly half of Medicare's enrollment. Officials say that the government expects to collect as much as $4.7 billion over a decade from added oversight. At issue, insurers receive extra payments when they care for patients with serious health conditions. That has incentivized industry players to maximize the number of diagnoses for each patient, resulting in bigger gross profit on Medicare plans than other types of insurance. Insurance companies fought against the new rule, which was first proposed by the Trump administration. They argue that the current system of risk adjustment is essential to making sure that health plans don't discriminate against older adults with potentially expensive illnesses. And, Andrew, this is another situation where, look, you may have some companies that have taken advantage of it. Uh, That's the impact of how they set these things up. Every time there are rules created, there will be companies that take advantage of it. But I also completely am concerned about the idea that if you change this, there are going to be um, some of the patients who are most in need, who are the sickest, who are going to get left behind and left out in this process. I don't know how you kind of... uh, Try and make sure you're not letting cheaters go through and do this and, and, and some pretty terrible behavior by companies. But also at the same time, make sure that you're protecting the neediest individuals. 
No question. No question. Next on Squawk Pod, remember this. Exxon made more money than God this year. Well, ExxonMobil has smashed records, posting a $56 billion profit in 2022. That's $6.3 million an hour. The CEO, Darren Woods, joins us exclusively next on the quarter and the year and what Exxon will do with its profits. The White House needs to get its facts straight. If you look at what we've been doing, we've invested more than any of our other peers. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. And we're back. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today, but we're going to see him later this week. Energy giant ExxonMobil reporting fourth quarter and full year results this morning. Joining us right now is Exxon's chairman and CEO, Darren Woods. And Darren, the numbers are, are good. Came in with adjusted earnings on a quarterly basis of $3.40. That was better than the street was expecting. I think they were looking for $3.29. And just profit Profit numbers on the annual basis, more than $55 billion. That's a record for ExxonMobil uh, and, and beats the highest level you'd seen before that in 2008 by a long shot. I think it was $45.2 billion then. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what's happening, what you're seeing, and, and how these numbers came? Sure. And thanks. Uh, good morning, Becky. Good to see you again. Yeah, I think uh, the results in 2022 reflect uh, primary three things, the right strategy, excellence in execution, and then the hard work and commitment of our people. Extremely proud of what we've delivered. You know, back in 2018, you and I talked about uh, what we our strategy moving forward, investing counter-cyclically, recognizing the need for the products that we were producing. And um, while it wasn't well received at the time, I think we're seeing today, five years on, that that investment and the fundamentals to grow production. If you look at our Permian production, we're at record levels. We brought on two production units in Guyana, now have 340,000 barrels a day of capacity that wasn't there back in 2018. We ran our refineries in, in North America at record levels. And if you look around the globe, we ran at the highest late rate since 2012. So we've done a lot of good work uh, to uh, grow production, grow valuable production. I think an interesting statistic is if you look at our net profit margin, you go back to when we earned uh, our record profits in the past, our net profit margin was 10%. You look at our net profit margin for 2022, it's 14%, a 400 mm. basis point improvement. That has to do with the, the work that we've been doing to high grade the portfolio, sell out non-core assets, uh, invest in advantaged assets, restructure, lower our costs, and focus on productivity. So I, I think a lot of uh, good news behind those results. Obviously the market helped, 
but it was underpinned by a, a really sound strategy and a commitment to that strategy and a commitment by our entire workforce to deliver uh, when people needed us most. Hey, Darren, uh, it, it, they are very strong numbers. I've looked through it several times trying to figure out why the stock was trading down this morning. It was down by two and a half percent earlier. Now it's down by about one point three percent. Look, we talked to an investor earlier today who said, look, the reason you might have a little bit of frustration in the markets is this is the market pouting, thinking we want bigger share buybacks. We want bigger dividends coming our way. That's what they got last week from Chevron. And maybe they're pouting about this a little bit. What would you say to that? Well, I think our capital allocation strategy, we've been very clear on for uh, for as long as I can remember. And certainly since I've been in this job, we're very focused on. You know, first priority in our businesses is uh, finding advantaged investments. And if you look at the three sectors that we participate in, in the upstream, it's a depletion business. So if you're not investing, uh, you're shrinking. In the chemical business, it's a growing uh, a market and growing business. It grows faster than GDP. If you're not investing there to keep up with market demand, you're losing market position. In our refining business, the demand for those products continue to evolve. If you're not investing to uh, adjust your, your footprint and your product slate, uh, you're becoming obsolete. And so absolutely core to our business, capital intensive business is find the right projects that are advantaged and deliver higher returns. We're also got a lot of investment now uh, going into the low carbon solutions business. As policy develops and the market starts to look for opportunities in that space, the things, the, the competencies and capabilities that we've built over the years uh, are going to lend themselves to that and give us an advantage in that space, too. We're certainly finding that in the early days of our low-carbon solutions business. So capital investment is absolutely critical. Building the balance sheet so that we can ride through these commodity cycles and continue uh, to execute the strategy and to invest in those critical uh, projects is a, a very important uh, priority. And then the third is sharing our success with shareholders, which we have grown our dividend 40 consecutive years. Uh, we instituted buybacks last year, raised it a couple times. We're now, I think, buying back more shares than any other uh, anybody else in the industry. So it's a balanced approach and one geared for long-term success, uh, not responding to the to, to any one um, uh, critic on on the day. Frankly, is it is it tougher to try and respond to critics when that critic is the White House, the occupant of the White House, who has been very harsh? with oil companies uh, overall. And there was a pretty harsh statement that came last week from the White House when Chevron said that it was jacking up its share buybacks and, and buying back and, and raising its dividend as well. That, that you know, look, they, they want to make sure that oil companies are investing and they have been very harsh. Is it just a harder line to walk these days when you have a, a president and a White House that feels that way about things? Well, I think, you know, my first uh, comment would be the White House needs to get its facts straight. If you look at what we've been doing, we've invested more than any of our other peers. And as I, as I said earlier, uh, when, when times were toughest, we were out there investing, investing at a level uh, that exceeded anybody else in our industry. And so uh, we've done the hard work. We've made the investments. We had a keen focus on making sure that we had the production there and products available for society when it was needed. When the call came, we answered it. We had spent that money, taken criticism at the time, and grew our production and are basically providing more products today uh, because of those investments. And so I think we're doing what the White House, in essence, is asking us to do. You got to remember our shareholders stuck with us as we went through the pandemic and the low points. Uh, they hung with us in our investment and our strategies, and they're now seeing some of the benefits of that, as are our, our shareholders through their dividends. Uh, many of them retirees who count on that dividend stream as income. And so uh, no apologies for the dividends that we've paid. Uh, very proud of 
our ability to share our success with the shareholders, but at the same time, very focused on meeting the needs of society, not only for the, the energy and chemical products that they need, but also to address emissions and to make sure that we're focused on lowering our emissions footprint. Our emissions intensity this year is at its lowest level it's ever been. And we're doing that while we're growing production. We're on track in the Permian to get to net zero by 2030. So I think, you know, as you look across our portfolio and the work that we're doing, we're striking the right balance. We're generating returns, we're meeting the demands of society, and we're sharing our success with our shareholders and those who invest in our company. The Inflation Reduction Act did a lot of things. Uh, you know, people will argue about whether it actually reduced inflation on any counts, but it did a lot of things, including increasing the paybacks that are there for carbon capture and, uh, and laying out an incentive for hydrogen, which you guys are also working on right now, too. How, how does the IRA change um, the value prospect for any of those projects you've been working on? Well, you know, uh, I've said all along, this is a tough market when you're trying to uh, establish a carbon market and incentives to reduce emissions. And so I think what that policy does and something that we've talked about with governments all around the world is you've got to kickstart that industry through uh, incentives to uh, support the investments that have to be made. And they're very large investments. Uh, that's one of the things where we think we can bring some advantage. We've got the experience in making these large investments. The technologies are very much in line with the capabilities that we've built over time. The financial incentives weren't there, and the IRA provides that. It's actually grown uh, the pool of emissions that you can get after economically, and, and that's one of the balances that we have to strike, reducing emissions and generating returns for our shareholders. And so that and equation that I often talk about, providing products that the society needs, uh, lowering emissions, and I'd add a third one, which is making sure that we, we generate returns for our shareholders. Those can all be done, but they have to be done very thoughtfully. The IRA helps with that, but I would tell you it's a first step. Uh, there's gonna have to be advances in technology to lower the cost. If you're gonna get after all of the emissions and help society meet its ambitions for net zero, there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done, a lot of investments that have to be made, and a lot of progress we've gotta make in technology. But starting with policies that incentivize that work, I think, is the right first step. Darren, um, I, I think for the quarter, you took a $1.3 billion hit to, to your earnings from taxes that were coming from the EU. And I think they've called this a solidarity contribution. But let's be clear about it. It's a windfall profits tax. Um, you all have filed a lawsuit against the EU. You don't think that this was fair or done legally. Where, where do things stand with that lawsuit right now? Well, I mean, let's start by, I think, putting the situation in Europe into some context. And I'll, and I'll start by saying uh, we feel for the challenges that the people, people in Europe are experiencing. If there's any company in the world that understands the importance of reliable and affordable energy, it's our company. It's something that we've talked about since I've been in this job and this dual challenge, this end equation of trying to address that need while lowering emissions has been a, a priority for us for some time. And we have invested to try to accomplish that. What we're seeing play out in Europe is the consequence of ill-informed, uh, frankly, bad policy, policy based on ideology rather than the realistic constraints and practicalities of the market. And so we're suffering the consequences of that. You don't solve bad policy with worse policy by taxing the investments in the companies that are making those investments trying to solve that issue. And that's what we're seeing there. Our suit basically addresses the, the approach that they use to put those taxes in, violating their own rules. And frankly, we feel it's illegal, not only bad policy, but illegal illegally done. And so we're challenging that and we're working our way through the courts on that. 
Where, where do you think things stand right now, just in terms of the energy markets, the challenges that may be faced ahead, the China reopening, and what that all means for energy prices? Because if you look right now, WTI prices are back below where they were before Russia first attacked Ukraine. So we've kind of come through the heightened tensions around that. Most people, though, seem to think that oil prices will head up from here just because with China reopening and other potential pressures, the supply to demand picture is is going to be a little tighter. Yeah, I'd set, set the Ukraine invasion aside just for a moment. And I think what we're continuing to see here uh, is the challenges associated with, with coming out of the pandemic and the fact that during the pandemic, the industry suffered huge losses and not much cash flow, a lot of companies going out of businesses, a lot of refineries shut. As the economies around the world began to recover, uh, supply wasn't there to meet that growing demand, and we saw tight prices. And in fact, prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we were seeing those prices come, come up again. Uh, throughout the Ukraine invasion, we haven't seen a decrease in, in uh, a large decrease in crude and products coming out of Russia. So that really hasn't you know, there's been some volatility associated with concerns, but we haven't seen the supply balance materially change with uh, refined products and crude. Um, as you go forward, I think as the economies continue to uh, recover, it's going to take time for the investments that are being made now to bring additional capacity on. So I think we're going to be in this fairly tight uh, window of you know demand and supply being um, tight and uh, probably going out of balance if demand grows faster than that supply comes on and we'll see prices come back up again. So I think it'll be a fairly constructive environment in most of the sectors that we're in with respect to energy. You did have improved industry refining margins. You said that was higher demand and lower inventories. That That's part of what helped the profitability picture in the fourth quarter. But you've also yeah. just completed your Beaumont refinery expansion. Is that going to change the picture at all in terms of the margins there? So, uh, you know, what we, we invested and made that decision uh, many, many years ago around looking at the growth we were seeing in the Permian and frankly justified that expansion on transportation differentials for the crude that we were importing uh, and, and the transportation we paid on that versus what we can bring into the Permian. And so it's a very advantaged project. We also recognize that as refining capacity was attriting, refineries that are complex and have a diversity of products, we have chemicals at that plant, lubricants at that plant, as well as fuels, those uh, refineries are advantaged and therefore the right ones to make the investments in. Our Beaumont expansion, we finished, uh, mechanically completed that project at the end of last year. We're now in the process of commissioning that. That'll bring 250,000 barrels of capacity onto the U.S. market. That's the largest expansion in a decade. Uh, and so it will help relieve uh, price pressures here in the U.S. Uh, but I think if you look at the whole of the world uh, and the refineries that closed during uh, the pandemic, it's not going to solve that supply-demand balance. It will take time for investments, primarily in the Middle East and uh, Asia, to catch up with that tight supply-demand uh, picture. Darren, I know that you guys have gotten smarter about your investments and smarter about trying to make sure that they're profitable, looking at the margins very closely. What's the number you just said, 14 percent margins now versus 10 percent when? Yeah. So in 2012, when you, if you go back to when our highest revenue uh, period was 2012, which actually had higher revenue than we're seeing today, but lower earnings. And that's the net profit margin, 2012, 10 percent today uh, at 14 percent. And, and again, that improvement is around uh, high grading the portfolio, making sure that we're investing in more productive assets. Uh, it's a function of the reorganizations that we've done, better leveraging our scale and integration and becoming more efficient and lowering our costs. So real proud of that. And we've got more work uh, in the pipeline that we're doing to 
continue to take advantage of the scale that we have as a company and the integrated um, businesses that we have. And we have a unique position that we have a diversified portfolio of businesses from our upstream chemicals and then uh, our downstream businesses, our fuels products business, as well as lubricants and now low carbon solutions. And our strategy has is built on the fact that each of those businesses, while somewhat diversified, share the same core competencies and capabilities so that we can centralize those capabilities and meet the needs of those businesses as those businesses evolve. And so it makes us somewhat robust to the uncertainty associated with the transition. Is whatever that speed of that transition is, we can adjust the resources and the assets that we allocate to the businesses associated with that speed. So I think we've got a, a fairly good position where we're building on core cap uh, capabilities with a lot of optionality and flexibility. You, you should be proud of those profit margins. That's exactly what managers are supposed to be doing, finding ways to be more effective and more efficient. But when you start talking about profit margins of 14 percent, and given the political hot potato that everything in the oil industry is right now, um, in the energy industry, I should say, it's not just oil at this point. Um, do you worry that, that the politicians are going to crack down or that the windfall profits tax, which has not existed in the United States uh, currently, is something that they'll propose in Washington? Well, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, politicians around the world learn from the experiences that we've just kind of been through. And I think we'll continue to work our way through in Europe, which is in a commodity market, prices are set by supply demand balance. And uh, when those get out of balance, uh, you get high prices. And that's that's the fundamental. So the way that we make sure that we have affordable prices, reliable supplies of energy is making sure that you've got production and supply. That's how you address that. Uh, and the more work that governments around the world do to suppress that supply, or to penalize the companies who are engaged day in and day out of bringing that supply on, uh, the worse that problem becomes, you only exacerbate it. One of the challenges is the timeframes associated with the decisions made uh, today don't manifest themselves for years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have here is the disconnect between the political time cycle and the industry and the energy time cycle. Those are two very different time cycles, but very important to understand. Fair point. Uh, Darren, want to thank you very much for your time this morning. Again, Darren Woods is the chairman and CEO of ExxonMobil. Good to see you, Darren. Good seeing you, Becky. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod. Electric vehicle price wars. A lower price for the electric Mustang. How Ford, Tesla, and everyone else stacks up. Wall Street Journal reporter Tim Higgins joins us. I was curious how you're thinking these days about a Rivian. How you're thinking about these days about... Uh, a Lucid, for example. Yeah, I kind of think of them in the same ways that I thought about Tesla uh, 2008, 2009. It's a real critical period. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand under by in three, two, one, cue Andrew. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Osorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off today. Uh, we got a lot going on though. Ford following Tesla this week and cutting the price of its electric vehicles. 
Here's Jim Chanos, who has a short bet on Tesla. That's what he had to say on mass, uh, Fast Money last night. The narrative seems to be, well, yeah, there's a price war going on, but the legacy auto guys are going to be hurt a lot more than Tesla is. Okay. But that just shows you that the auto business is a tough business, right? It's, if you've got to cut price as well as raise price for ebbing supply and demand, you're in the auto business. You're in a cyclical business. For more on EV price moves, I want to bring in Tim Higgins, a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and the author of the book, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the bet of the century. Let me ask you, as it, when people talk about it as the bet of the century, some people say it's an auto company. Some people say it's something else entirely, Tim. You've been covering Tesla for a very, very long time. And there's two ways to think about the valuation of the company. One is as a car company, and one is as a car company plus plus, or something else entirely. And I'm curious where you land these days. You're right. You know, I think the market would like to value it as a tech company, uh, betting on the idea that it's going to be more than just a car. It's going to be an autonomous robot taxi service. It's going to be an energy company. And the market's really been struggling in the last few weeks as you've seen kind of the realities of, of moving metal in the storerooms, it, it's messy and it can be kind of expensive. And so I, I, I think in the last few weeks, you've seen some of that kind of excitement return to the idea that it's a tech company, but it's still a long road for the rest of the year. Heading into a potential recession could really test that thesis, I believe. And, and where do you land when it comes to the pricing issue? I mean, the good news was they lowered prices, seems to be moving, moving vehicles. The question is, at some point, from a pricing perspective, can everybody else do that? Maybe they can't do that. Well, in a lot of ways, it's a classic uh, automotive uh, sector move. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the issue here is that Tesla has so much margin that it can afford to do this. And investors uh, traditionally here have been willing to see uh, margins decrease, that pressure, and, and, and with the, kind of the seeing the, the growth in sales, They'd rather see market share gains or keeping that market share strong uh, because Tesla is a growth story. Now, other automakers don't necessarily have that ability, and they're really in a bind as they try to come to this new technology into the marketplace. And they had that they've been betting that the pricing would be what it was going to be. And now, uh, you know, they're facing new pressures from Tesla. We show Tesla and we show it up against Rivian, Lordstown Motors, Neo and Lucid Group. We don't show it against Ford or General Motors or the like. I don't know if that's, you think, the right way to, to look at this or the wrong way to look at it. I was curious how you're thinking these days about a Rivian, how you're thinking about these days about uh, a Lucid, for example. Yeah, I kind of think of them in the same ways that I thought about Tesla uh, 2008, 2009. It's a real critical period. Uh, it, you know, Cash is going to be king for these smaller players. Can they get through the uh, a downward cycle? That's going to be the big gamble. You know, the it, people who look at the, uh, the, the the product that Rivian is doing have a lot of praise for it. They have a lot of praise for what Lucid is doing. The bigger question is, can they make it as a, a real car company? And if you look at Tesla as an example, that can be a very painful process from going from the rather cool idea of a car, uh, cool product, to making a cars at scale. Uh, just ask Elon Musk and his uh, sleeping on the factory floor for all those uh, years. It's it's messy. Um, the other thing that uh, Tesla's now getting involved in in a much more uh, meaningful way, I know that they had delivered some trucks uh, to PepsiCo at one point uh, earlier this year, but they're, they're going they're going heavy on, uh, on on the heavies, if you will. How big a business is that long term? It could potentially be uh, very big. Uh, the question will be, 
do these fleet buyers want to go that route? Uh, the uh, incentives that the U.S. government has put out there could help that business. And it seems as if Tesla is finally getting uh, real uh, about the investments required. We've seen recent announcements of expanding their factory in Nevada for that business. Uh, that's uh, a real potential there. But in the past few years, as we've watched Tesla, the, the priority has been getting the battery cells and putting the kind of intellectual might towards getting out the Model S or the Model Y, excuse me. That's where earlier the growth has been. Uh, at this point, it's it's hard to know if the semi is really going to be a, a significant part of the business. It could be. And that's part of the excitement around the potential for Tesla is that they're still pulling those levers of what they could potentially be uh, as a car company for the next generation. OK, Tim, it's good to see you. Uh, glad we got the uh, tech working for the tech reporter. And we look forward to seeing you very, very soon. All right. I guess that does it for us today. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Andrew, see you later. See you. And that's it. Thank you for listening to Squawk Pod today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the very best of our show, the interviews and analysis, even the bad jokes that you cannot miss, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow and listen already, first, thank you. Second, please do me a favor and rate or review Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way for other listeners listeners to find us. Thank you. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.